0: This is the SciDevNet podcast for science news and views on global development.
1: In this podcast, we have a special focus on adaptation to climate change following the release of a new report by the United Nations. We hear from experts on sustainable architecture and financial risk management.
0: Then we look to the skies and learn about astronomy for development. And finally, we hear about research into the Cuban diaspora and an opportunity to turn the brain drain into a brain gain. Coming up right after this. Welcome to the SciDevNet podcast, where we travel the globe to connect science and development through news, views and analysis. Our goal is to raise awareness of the issues to help reduce poverty and
1: improve sustainable development.
0: And we kick off our podcast with a big hello from me, Chris Kreese. And a big hello from me, Rosina Mbewe. Managing climate change is becoming a global priority in the wake of new reports released this year by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, also known as IPCC. The fifth assessment
1: report, called AR5, is released in stages and is the most comprehensive analysis of existing climate change research.
0: The Working Group 2 report, released 31st March this year, is far more than a collection of doomsday predictions. It provides recommendations for action, how we can mitigate further climate change and adapt to its effects. Though it looks like the cost
1: of climate change will outweigh any benefits, Side of Net Media producer Lou DiBello, who assessed the report, tells us that a rise of global mean temperature up to 2.5 degrees Celsius could cost us as much as 2% of our global income due to agricultural losses and energy costs for cleaning up damages.
0: But the impacts of climate change are not equally shared. Poor and rural communities are likely to be hit hardest. For these groups, climate change is acting as a risk multiplier, worsening environmental, social, economic and political stressors.
1: There is good news, however... Scientists expect that the actions we take now to mitigate climate change and adapt to its effects will significantly reduce the risks that we face at the end of the 21st century. So how will we adapt to climate change? Well, Side of Net editor Kazianovsky caught up with Irina Bauman, a professor of sustainable urbanism at University of Sheffield, at the We Need to Talk Symposium on Catalytic Climate Communication. The meeting was held 7th April at Karlsberg Academy
0: in
2: Copenhagen, Denmark.
0: Irina spoke with Kaz about a role for sustainable architecture in the global response to climate change.
2: What brings an architect to Denmark to discuss climate change?
0: Uh, Architecture and placemaking in
3: general and urban design have a major role to play in a number of uh, ways, in mitigation, of course, but also in developing resilience for local neighbourhoods and also in innovating how we can adapt our environment to climate change. So it's very relevant to architecture.
2: And what do you practically do when you're addressing climate change?
3: I guess we do two things. One is we deepen the knowledge about what can be done. So, for example, I do research projects about with modelling about how existing buildings can be adapted to what's coming. That's very practical and technical. But we also work with our clients in a different way. We work on the processes of how to develop resilience within a neighbourhood, how to create the kind of facilities that neighbourhoods will need in the future, To withstand um, adverse weather effects and and, and general change of climate.
2: You mentioned in your talk about vanity architecture being the hallmark of modern cities. Can you tell me something more about that?
3: Uh, I guess I was referring to the last 40, 50 years where architecture, um, our architects very happily married uh, the clients in terms of the aspirations. So, a lot of our cities, if you look at them carefully, the city centres especially, have been developed by people with power and that both political and financial power and architects have been in the service for a long time and especially the last 20 30 years architecture has become almost like a vanity acquisition the bigger the bigger the name the more um, you know the more iconic the building the greater value it has to its client so we have really used our creativity very much to enhance the wealth of um, the clients who are already very wealthy. Uh, and this has dominated architectural uh, discourse for many years now. And
2: I've been hearing a lot in this IPCC report that finance is going to be a very, very important factor in the future. Successful finance is obviously important for everyone's well-being. How do you see that relating to climate change and architecture particularly?
3: I think we have to rely much less on finance. I think a lot of architectural innovation now is very much in tapping into co-working with users, so substituting money and finance for human ingenuity and effort. And most innovative architectural thinking is now in that area of actually doing more with less. I think relying on finance to create architecture is going to be a much smaller area of work for us. Thank you very much. Thank you.
0: Many thanks to Irina Bauman and Kazianowski for that chat. It was interesting to hear Irina say that she thinks finance will have a less
1: important role in driving sustainable architecture in the future, because architects are learning to do more with
0: less. That raises a good point, Rosina. In the wake of the IPCC's fifth assessment report, there has been growing concern about the costs of mitigating and adapting to climate change. So, of course, throwing lots of money at the problem isn't necessarily a solution. But with an eye to improving efficiency of development, we've an opportunity to reduce net carbon emissions while still expanding build-out. This would be a good time to mention that the
1: AR5 report also reinforces the message that climate change is a serious threat to food security and its effects are already evident, especially in poor areas of the world. Mm. So food security is an issue that will require a lot of financial support.
0: Good point, and the report does call for increased investment to speed up the pace of adaptation for better management of food value chains.
1: After the report dropped, there was a meeting on 3rd April called Agriculture Growth, Jobs, Food Security and Climate, taking action in response to IPCC. This was hosted by the Willis Research Network, the world's largest collaboration between public science and the finance sector, headquartered here in London,
0: UK. Kazianovsky attended the event and reports that the audience watching the live stream and those in the auditorium were asked a poll question. When it comes to adaptation, who has the best ideas? The public sector, the private sector, or the farmers themselves? I suspect a lot of people
1: voted for the farmers because they see the effects of climate change in their daily work.
0: hmm Well, you're right, most people, said farmers. But the chairman of the Willis Research Network, Rowan Douglas, surprisingly didn't put up his hand, and he has a good reason. Kaz caught up with him after the meeting to find out more.
4: I'm sure farmers do have great ideas, and they understand probably the risk better than anyone. But regretfully, they operate within a system. They operate within a financial system, and we talked quite a lot about land rights and the legal system. And regretfully, at an individual level, even at a macro, even at a, a, a macro level of, of co- communities and countries, even until the rules of the system are appropriately configured, there is actually um, a, a, a really difficulty in how much can be achieved. And and regretfully, these literally are global problems, and we need to have global solutions in terms of the rules of the game, which will then reinforce and support all that sort of local level action that's already being done and will continue to be done but hopefully allow it to be even more effective but those macro global solutions clearly have to be informed by yes the right rules of the game but in a way that can be implied but those those small scale farmers or central bankers they all they all need the same thing they only decent information correct incentives and a shared understanding of the system and, and link macro with micro. So I think the needs of the farmer and the needs of the central banker are actually not entirely dissimilar.
2: Can you say something about why we're here in the city of London, the square mile, in the financial heart of of the world, in some ways, um, and how that has a bearing and an importance in this debate?
4: Well, we're here because, um, luckily enough, Willis has a a great auditorium uh, in the City of London. So that's, I suppose, the practical reasons for your listeners to to know. But the other thing is we are very, very focused on these issues for our core business. We recognise that the success of our business as an industry, and I'm sure uh, our own business, really depends on having a, a proper understanding of the future and, and basically recognizing the remarkably positive role that we can play. And that's good for business, but I think also it's good for the very sense of purpose we have as professionals. And what always strikes me is you talk to people in sort of at the weekend and in the evening, and we're all just people. And frankly, most of us are all just people when we come to work. We don't necessarily have this private sector persona or this public sector persona or we work for the civil society whatever that is in the third sector we're just people who we all share a a desire to fulfill what we can do individually and for our families but also to play a part in 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 making sure this this environment we live in uh, is going to be there for our children and, and all the rest of it and what the most important thing of bringing this meeting here was to show that the city in this example is just full of ordinary people like everybody else
2: Rowan Douglas, thank you very much. Thank you. Many thanks
1: to Rowan Douglas and Kazianovsky. So, Chris, when the audience was asked whether the public, private sector or farmers would have the best ideas for adapting agriculture to climate change, Rowan did have a very good reason for not raising
0: his hand. Indeed, Rowan thinks the solution to the impact of climate change on food security is only possible through a convergence of commitments because we all operate in an integrated system.
1: Right. Large-scale challenges require large-scale solutions. So it makes sense to promote the financial inclusion of everybody.
0: Yes, which raises the question, as extreme weather events increase as a result of climate change, should insurance be compulsory for all farmers, especially smallholders? I expect farmers will have a lot to say on how they can best protect food production,
1: and risk management will benefit from a multitude of opinions and strategies for greater resilience.
0: That is a key take-home message from the IPCC's AR5 report. There's really no one-size-fits-all solution, so approaches will need to be tailored to the stresses, vulnerabilities, and resources that exist at the local and regional levels. Caso also mentioned that one of the views expressed at the meeting
1: was that the decision-making power has shifted from governments to commercial corporations. So now more than ever, we are looking to corporations to step up and become more vocal because the longer we delay in acting, the
0: harsher the effects of climate change. Thanks, Rosina. To hear the full interview with Rowan Douglas and for more stories on climate change, go to www.sidev.net. Up next, we hear about Cuba's scientific diaspora. The migration of scientists towards countries with better funding and training opportunities has created a brain drain for countries with limited resources. In the case of Cuba, after the
1: collapse of socialist Europe, the Soviet Union, and following the American blockade, emigration rates increased and the diaspora widened. Difficulty obtaining permanent science and technology jobs in academia and industry further
0: encourage the mobility of scientists. But scientific diasporas also present an opportunity to turn brain drain into brain gain, so to speak, by exporting intellectual capital back to home countries such as Cuba by way of transnational knowledge networks. These networks can connect research groups to promote information exchange and capacity building. Kay Ali, SciDevNet's Head of
1: Business Development, attended a conference on transnational knowledge networks in global science at the University of West London on 20th March. The focus was on mobility, migration and networking in the Cuban scientific community based on research by the information management group there.
0: Let's hear what Kay thought of the event. She's interviewed by SciDevNet multimedia producer Lou Del Bello. Then we'll chat more about the research.
5: So, um, Miriam Callender talked about the Cuban context and the human capital in terms of the scientists and the engineers. And my feeling from this presentation was the focus was very much on the brain drain from Cuba. So... The majority of people that were tertiary educated in science and engineering were actually leaving Cuba and then not actually returning to contribute back to Cuba. And there was a a recognition that tertiary educated scientists and engineers were crucial for the economic development of the country. So
6: how come they decided not to come back? They normally prefer to stay in other countries.
5: Yeah, um, they talked about actually how the majority of people would go to the US. And interestingly, they would go to Canada and Western Europe, but they didn't actually explore the reasons why they were leaving Cuba. It was more about we know that there's an issue that this percentage of people are leaving, let's explore what they're doing when they're leaving. Um, And there's a kind of acknowledged feeling within Cuba that want to become um, that the Cubans want to be part of a transnational knowledge network, but no such network exists. So I, my feeling was that this piece of research was carried out to provide an insight in order to then be able to identify the steps that you need to undertake or the process you need to put in place to develop a transnational knowledge network. And from your perspective, how would you uh, reflect on, um, on the issue of migration
6: from countries such as Cuba, for example, which has a particular uh, political
5: situation and economic situation? So what, what were your reflection? I guess my personal view was um, um, in support of the development of knowledge networks. But my feeling is that when you try to set up any kind of association or formal associations within countries where migrants have gone and settled, um, you have to do it in the context of the indigenous population. And actually if you're really encouraging people to set up associations and formalise relationships with their home countries you've got to do it with the sensitivity of how it will affect and be perceived in the indigenous population. Um, and funding is a crucial issue, so if you're if we're talking about the the Cuban diaspora and they want to set up a formal association, who will fund that? Where will the funding come from? Will it come from local government? Will it come from government? what strategic interest will actually the government have in funding such a network or or association? Do you think there might be a way to reverse the brain drain and that and do you think that
6: could be useful for Cuba or to improve? even to improve the communication between Cuba
5: and other countries? Yeah, I think that essentially what it comes down to is, as an individual, what makes you want to go back to your country is the job opportunities. So if there is a job opportunity and there's an economic reason or incentive for you to go back, you will go back. So I imagine most of these uh, Cuban scientists and engineers they're economic migrants they're going in the search of a better life better quality of life more opportunity career progression so actually maybe it's about looking internally within Cuba at the science community and thinking about um, how much investment they're um, really putting into developing the capacity at tertiary level education links into the private sector so actually people aren't getting a degree and then not having a job or having the skills, but there are no jobs available.
1: Many thanks to Kay Ali and Ludi Bello, who is now in the studio with us. Welcome, Lou.
5: Thank you, Rosina. It's very
6: nice to be here. So the research Kay was referring to in that chat was by Miriam Palacios-Calendor, a PhD student at University College London, and her advisor, Stephen Roberts, who is a Senior Lecturer in Information Management
0: at the University of West London. Thanks, Lou. I look forward to learning more about their research as it's published. But in the meantime, I was reading Miriam and Stevens VISTAs paper from 2012, and it looks like Cuba has yet to construct a transnational knowledge network for science because they first need a detailed audit of their scientific diaspora.
6: Yes, characterising the diaspora is an important first step. In that paper, Miriam discusses a pilot study of 25 Cuban scientists working abroad. The study followed their professional activities for 25 years, starting in 1986. Interesting. And what did they find? Well, um, in a period following the migration, the number of scientific publications increased by almost 70%, and the publications tended to be in journals with higher impact factors
0: and international readership. Mm, I'd be interested to see what the confounding factors might be for those relationships. And of course, 25 people is a small sample size, but it sounds like there is great potential for leveraging this international expertise through knowledge networks to support science in Cuba. And publishing in open access journals would be one way
6: to do it. Cuba invests a lot in human capital, some would say at the expense of social comfort. So re-engagement with the diaspora would help recapture some of that investment. Miriam and Stephen would also be looking to the internet and social media for ways to promote intellectual
1: migration back to Cuba. It sounds like the Cuban diaspora may be a helpful model for developing transnational knowledge networks in other developing countries too. Here's to brain gain. Here, here. Up next, our final interview considers a role for astronomy in development. <laughs>
0: For our final interview, we travel to Brussels, Belgium, where correspondent Christina Gallardo attended a conference Investing in People, Prosperity, and Peace, organized by the African European Radio Astronomy Platform. Lou Del Bello, who worked with Christina, is here to tell us more. Thank you, Chris. So the conference happened on the 2nd and 3rd of
6: April, but this platform was launched back in 2012 to boost science capacity building in Africa, through collaborations with the European Union in radio astronomy. As it turns out, astronomy is one of the most cost-effective fields of science for developing countries. It also helps
1: promote the infrastructure development and other fields of research. Radio astronomy in Africa is attracting plenty of attention too. Radio telescopes have already produced a ton of data and pictures that can be affordably analysed by small universities around the continent. This is true,
6: and a Southern African large telescope, named Square Kilometre Array, or SKA for short, is still under construction, but it's expected
1: to drive the local economy. And if you'd like to learn more about the SKA, you can listen to last month's podcast on our website, There's a great video from Jean Spa, who visited the construction site in the Karoo Desert. Yeah, and
6: the SKA is great because not only will it map skies of the southern hemisphere, it's also creating new collaboration opportunities between African and European scientists.
0: Great, so talk us into this interview, Lou. You'll hear Christina
6: chat with George Miley, a professor of astronomy at Leiden University in the Netherlands, and to Ian Jones, a CEO at Goenheerle Earth Station, about astronomy for development.
7: Astronomy could be the most effective discipline to build science capacity in developing countries. George Smiley, astronomer professor at the Leiden University in the Netherlands, leads a plan to foster development, education and research in other areas of science through investing in astronomy. We've met in Brussels after a conference courtesy of the African European Radio Astronomy Platform to find out the benefits of telescopes for developing nations, especially those in Africa. What can you tell us about this programme, Astronomy for Development?
8: We've set up a, a, an office in South Africa together with the South African government to implement this strategic plan astronomy for development and although the hub is the office in South Africa we are actually implementing projects all over the world and we have regional nodes in several regions and two already in Africa. We are implementing several projects within Africa, Ethiopia, Zambia, with regional nodes. And so everywhere, all over Africa, we are using astronomy to stimulate capacity building.
7: But why astronomy?
8: Astronomy is something that really excites very young children and also teenagers. And so you can use astronomy to get very young children interested in science and in engineering. You can use astronomy to inspire teenagers and encourage them to choose a career in science and engineering and also with very little funding you can do astronomy research from a small university anywhere in the world because these days almost all the very large telescopes have archives which are publicly available, archives of data which can be mined by scientists everywhere. It's a very good way of stimulating capacity building at every level.
7: How can building radio telescopes in a developing country boost their technological development?
8: can stimulate technological development because of the ICT of fibre networks that are necessary to communicate between the telescopes. It it stimulates big data because to observe with the big radio telescope arrays you need an enormous amount of data and uh, so it stimulates ICT education at every level and it can uh, stimulate research infrastructure. So that is the main reason why South Africa invests so heavily in astronomy in order to boost the capacity of Africa not just to uh, do astronomy.
7: How can radio telescopes foster other disciplines of science?
8: The European radio telescope that's centered in the Netherlands was funded originally as an array that not only looks upwards at the sky but also looks downwards and it has geophysical detectors to monitor the Earth's crust in the Netherlands and how that is being affected by the gas mining. Space geodesy is also helped, assisted an enormous amount by radio astronomy because to determine the accurate position of radio sources, of radio stars in the sky, uh, you also need to determine the positions of the radio telescopes on Earth with unprecedented accuracy. So you can use that to monitor things like continental drift and various more down-to-earth applications. Once you have the infrastructure there, you can have detectors that look down as well as looking up. So, in principle, that geophysics can be done with such
9: an array.
7: Ian Jones, CEO of Unhili Earth Station, says astronomy will enable greater prosperity in Africa.
9: From the inspiration that radio astronomy brings, there are just really wide-ranging industries uh, and uh, areas where Europe and Africa can collaborate in the future and it brings new prosperity, new businesses.
7: Johns has found another way of fostering small electronic businesses in countries like Ghana and Kenya, thanks to this field of physics.
9: What we're doing at, at Goonhilly is we're taking these enormous satellite dishes, that were built in the 1960s and 70s at the time when satellites weren't very powerful so you needed huge antennas and we're converting those uh, now into radio telescopes and that's exactly what the AVN initiative is doing so it's taking these legacy large antennas in in the different African nations and converting them to be part of this radio astronomy story and from that then you can start to inspire people and build uh, new businesses build clusters of electronics companies based around those instruments uh, and it starts to involve people in the different African nations, which I think is very important.
7: That was Ian Jones talking at Investing in People, Prosperity and Peace Conference organized by the African European Radio Astronomy Platform in Brussels.
0: Many thanks to Christina Gallardo, George Miley and Ian Jones. It was really neat, Rosina, to hear about Ian creating a cluster of businesses in several African countries by recycling old satellites. I love projects that reuse old technology. Me
1: too. I think we should invest more in all areas of science. But I appreciate the strategy of prioritizing inspirational fields such as astronomy that get people excited about science at a young age. What did you think, Lou?
6: Well, I'm pleased to see this kind of international collaborations making investment in science development more affordable. South Africa is the main hub for radio astronomy on the continent right now. So we love to wait and see if other countries choose to invest in this scientific field as well.
0: Thanks, Lou. And that's our podcast. To comment on this show and other articles, go to our website at www.sidev.net. You can also visit the Donate to Us page if you'd like to contribute to SciDev support of journalists in developing countries.
1: To listen to our podcast whenever you like, you can also find us on SoundCloud.
0: Just search for SciDev. In the meantime, to stay connected, you can follow us on Twitter at SciDevNet and on Facebook. And if you have a question, idea to share or just want to get involved, you can email us info at sci-dev.net.
1: That leaves us to say many thanks to Irina Bauman, Rowan Douglas, Kazianovsky, George Miley, Ian Johns,
0: Christina Gallardo and Ludibello. Bello. And thanks to you, our listeners, for helping us put science at the heart of global development. Until next time, I'll see you bye bye from me, Rosina Mbewe. And bye from me, Chris Kreese.
5: This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Cambridge 105. Cambridge 105. 100-